step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, friends. Welcome to another edition of Theology Matters with the Paloos. And I am your host, uh, Devin Palou, and man, we've been looking forward to doing this show for a little while here. We got a book in the mail uh, probably about three weeks ago, new book called Humans 2.0, The Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Perspectives on Transhumanism, and it came from our good friends at Reasons to Believe Ministries, and uh, we've had uh, Professor Samples on the show numerous times to talk about his books. And so I thought, you know, I'd really love to get uh, Dr. Rana to come on and talk about some of his work. So we're really excited uh, to do that uh, today. And uh, we're starting to upload a lot of our uh, podcasts on our YouTube channel. If you go to Ratio Christie at Winthrop University on YouTube, you can find a lot of our uh, shows that we've done there. If you're new to the show, if you've never listened to Theology Matters before, it's a podcast we've been doing for about seven years. And we do all kind of different theological and apologetic topics. And we have numerous uh, debates that we have hosted on the show, uh, Roman Catholicism and uh, Protestants, atheism, Christianity, abortion, uh, Mormonism, etc. And we've also done uh, pretty much bringing in experts to talk about a different topic uh, every week as well. So we have all kind of topics from the occult, to Satanism, to Islam, um, all kind of good stuff. So next week we're going to have a show uh, dedicated to answering a lot of the questions from our LGBTQ uh, friends, those who who think that Christianity uh, maybe is wrong on their view of sexuality. So we have a a lady who is in that lifestyle for a while and has done a lot of research and work and has come out of it and is is a Christian and uh, takes time to answer a lot of those objections. Uh, the week after that, we'll actually be having Dr. Paul Copan to come on the show and talk about his new book, What Would Jesus Eat? The Biblical Case for Eating Meat. And really excited about that book as well as he, uh, him and his uh, co-author look at a lot of the arguments that vegans give and just kind of respond from a biblical uh, point of view. So if you go to Theology Matters with the Palouse, you can find our Facebook page. We upload our shows there. Uh, we're on Android and iTunes at True, capital T-R-U, radio. And then also if you go to Ratio Christie at Winthrop, you'll find a lot of our work there. So really excited today. Melissa uh, has some stuff going on, my beautiful wife. And she normally co-hosts with me, but today she she's not able to. So I was able to find a good replacement and my friend Jesse uh, Pearl. And Jesse was one of our Ratio Christie chapter, uh, not chapter director, but student uh, president when we first started and put put a a lot of work into that. So Jesse, are you there? I am. Thanks. You're very kind. The only thing that's good about me is Christ. So all glory to him. But yeah. That's good. That's good. Spoken like a true true Anglican there. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe just, um, for, just talk for a minute real quick before we bring in uh, Fuzz. And he he told us to call him Fuzz. I'm you know I don't like doing that. I'd rather call him Doctor Rana, but I'm going to do what he says to do. So we'll do that. But uh, we'll bring him in in just a second. Jesse, talk for a minute about how did you get into apologetics and theology and why is why is this issue of transhumanism why is that important to you yeah so i think for me kind of the apologetic side um started in high school i had as i'm sure a lot of young people have a friend who is an atheist and just talking about different sort of christian issues and philosophical topics like i really 
had to know my stuff and understand um, where Christians are coming from and also where he's coming from and be able to articulate that. And so then whenever I got to college, um, really kind of dug deep into theology. Um, and then I actually met you um, through a mutual professor friend one night uh, for, I think it was the uh, Bill Nye versus Ken Ham debate. Um, and we kind of hit it off and then started super getting into apologetics. And as far as transhumanism, I'm actually really excited to be talking about um, this topic today because it's near and dear to my heart. I'm about to go off to grad school for it. And really, I've been doing youth ministry for the last two and a half years. And I just have seen there's so many people that this is not even on their radar. They have no idea what it is or have no way of thinking about technology in a sort of theological framework or ways that we can think about technology that promotes human and Christian flourishing um, and integrating that in meaningful and productive ways into our lives. And so I, I think that this book and this topic is super important, especially as we continue to progress as a society and learn more and more about the world around us and be further and further and greater co-creators with God in his creation. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited and appreciate you allowing me to co-host with you. Absolutely, man. I'm so happy to have you here and we'll have you back. So let's do this. Let's go ahead and I'll have you do Dr. Or Fuzz's uh, bio and we'll go ahead and introduce him. So if you are ready with that, you can go ahead and, and uh, give us his bio. Most definitely. So formerly a senior scientist and research and development at Procter Gamble, Procter and Gamble, Dr. Fuzz Rana graduated with highest honors from Virginia State College, which is now university, with a BS in chemistry. And he went on to earn a PhD in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from the University of Ohio, where he was twice awarded the Donald Klippinger Research Award. He pursued postdoctoral studies in the biophysics of cell membranes at the universities of Virginia and Georgia. Several articles by Fuzz have been published in peer-reviewed scientific journals like Biochemistry, the Journal of Microbio Microbiological Methods, and the Journal of Science Education. And he's delivered, delivered numerous presentations at international scientific meetings. He also holds two patents, authored a chapter on molecular convergence and intelligent design for the nature of nature, and co-wrote a chapter on antimicrobial peptides and biological and synthetic membranes. Fuzz writes and speaks extensively about evidence for creation emerging from biochemistry, genetics, human origins, and synthetic biology. As president and research of apologetics at Reasons to Believe, he is dedicated to communicating to skeptics and believers alike the powerful scientific case for God's existence and the Bible's reliability. Fuzz currently lives in Southern California with his wife, Amy, where they have five children. And I'd like to be the first to welcome you on to the program, Fuzz. Well, Jesse, thank you for that, that introduction, and Devin, thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, it's such an honor to have you, and I'm sure people who listen to our podcast, most of them probably know who you are, so I'm sure they're, they're really excited to have you here as well. So, um, wonderful. Maybe you could start just telling us a little bit about um, why, why should Christians care uh, about this issue? Because like Jesse said, it's pretty much off the radar for a lot of people. Yeah, well, uh, I, I thought Jesse basically, uh, in a nutshell, pretty much described why uh, Ken Samples and I uh, wrote this book. And it's because uh, transhumanism, and we can unpack what that is in a minute, is uh, an idea that has moved from the fringes of, of the academy into the mainstream and is now trickling down to the person on the street, and it is infusing our culture at large. And uh, many people, both in the church and outside the church, are completely unaware of what transhumanism is, but it's going to be an a idea that will dramatically shape the way our, our culture operates in the next couple of decades. And um, we felt that it was really important for uh, Christians to understand what transhumanism is, to put it on their radar screen, but then to give them some 
set of tools or a framework to begin to think about transhumanism, but more appropriately to, and more importantly, to engage our culture when it comes to transhumanism, uh, to engage our culture well with the idea of uh, utilizing the interest in transhumanism as a way to build a bridge to the gospel. And, and so in the book, we have a, 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 about a third of the book or more devoted to the scientific advances that are giving credibility to the transhumanist vision. We talk about a number of the ethical issues that are raised because, with respect to these technologies, not only in terms of their biomedical uses, but also in terms of their use for human enhancements and, and in fulfillment of the transhumanist vision. And then we uh, argue that it's really the Christian worldview that gives us the best ethical framework uh, to engage uh, these technologies. And then finally, we talk about uh, the parallels between transhumanism and the Christian gospel and how we can use those parallels to actually uh, share the gospel with people uh, in our culture as we move again into a, a future where uh, biotechnology is going to become uh, very important and very prominent. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. So in your book, there's kind of two terms that you use a lot that a lot of people may not understand or know. Those are transhumanism and posthumanism. Could you kind of unpack both of those terms? Are they the same? Are they different? And how does that relate to your book? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Uh, and uh, those two terms are intertwined, but they really are referring to distinct ideas. Uh, now, tra transhumanism is a, actually a, an idea that has a, a scientific, philosophical, and even a theological set of components to it. And it's an idea that actually has its birth, as far as I can tell, around the turn of the last century in the early 1900s with a book published by J.B.S. Haldane, who was a famous British geneticist and an atheist too, by the way. And uh, Haldane wrote a book called The Atlas, where he was uh, projecting what the future would look like. Uh, and this was the early days of genetics, and he was uh, you know, speculating that one day we're going to understand genetics enough that we could actually take control of our own genetics in such a way that we could alter our makeup, our, our biology as human beings, and through the use of artificial wound technology, actually, in a sense, create uh, human beings or, or some type of human-like entity to, to our making, to our liking. And, and this idea uh, picked up some momentum in the 1960s when, after World War II, where our culture became much more technologically oriented. But it was always a fringe idea uh, in, the, in the sense of using technology to augment human beings, to make us stronger and smarter and more psychologically well-adjusted. Uh, this is an idea that has been a fringe idea, but it's now moved into the mainstream thanks to advances in, in uh, gene editing and computer brain interfaces and anti-aging technology, to name a few. And, and, and so now today, people that are advocating for transhumanism feel that it is a moral obligation. And this is a, uh, strong, but this is, again, important, that it's a moral obligation for human beings to use technology to improve upon our biological makeup. Because if by doing so, we will mitigate pain and suffering. We will correct the flaws of our evolutionary history and make human beings more well-suited for the technological age that we live in, that this will promote human progress and human flourishing leading us to some type of utopian future. And in fact, transhumanists argue that this technology could extend our life expectancy, maybe even indefinitely, and in doing so attain some form of immortality for human beings. And so this is where the religious nature of transhumanism comes into play, where transhumanists are arguing that we can actually take control of our own evolution and in the process, evolve humanity into a set of post-human species. And so transhumanism is the idea of using technology to modify our biological makeup, whereas a post-human uh, post future is a future that transhumanism will deliver, uh, where we will have 
the, human beings altered to the point that we now are a set of new species that are an amalgam of our biology and technology. And in fact, people also argue that with this technology, we might be able to create animals that have a sense of sentience, self-awareness that would be more human-like, and that they would, should be granted the same rights as, as human beings would be granted. There's also this idea in the post-human future of artificial intelligence, uh, creating, again, entities, machines with sentience, and that they, too, should be part of, this, of, of our society granted the same rights, again, as human beings. So post-humanism is kind of the product of, of, of the transhumanist vision, though it, it's more encompassing, including artificial intelligence and even, you know, uh, modified animals. Wow. Interesting. So post-human. Oops, sorry. Go ahead, Devin. No, go right ahead. Go ahead. Follow up. I was just gonna. I was just gonna ask. So then, post-human or almost post-nature is the destination, and transhumanism is kind of the mechanism for that to come about. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to think about it. Very good. Yeah, I, I was watching one of your lectures on this the other day, and you were talking kind of about with the comic books and uh, Iron Man. And, uh, you know, I hadn't really thought about that. You know, you were saying that um, a lot of comics, comic books and their stories are basically written to deal with the problem of evil and people, you know, wanting this, this type of savior. So it's, it's, it's interesting how that ties into the, to, to the whole issue. Cause I hadn't, you know, I hadn't really, I guess, looked at it like that before. So it's, Kind of an interesting theology of the comic books there. <laughs> yeah, well, so, you know, in, um, in the book. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say in the book. No, um, go, go right you know, ahead. Yeah, in the book, um, you know, Ken Samples and I wanted to have a little bit of fun with the topic, and so, given the popularity of superheroes and the fact that I'm a comic book nerd, uh, we thought it would be interesting to to try to uh, broaden the appeal of the book. Uh, by looking at Iron Man as a as the quintessential transhumanist superhero, because you know Iron Man wow. is a, a, a normal human being, Tony Stark, uh, who then uses technology to transcend his biological limits. And the interesting thing is that throughout the the, the story arcs of the Iron Man comics, uh, that the many of the issues that really are associated with transhumanism and human enhancement technology have been played out in the comic books themselves. And so it's a right. great way to help people see really what some of the issues are with transhumanism in a, in a fun way. But, you know, in a sense, comic books and science fiction have, have done a lot to, to help us uh, begin to navigate the complexities of transhumanism because people have, use transhumanism or transhumanist ideas as fodder for science fiction and for comic book fantasy. And so if we turn to this work, we've already, you know, have some kind of framework to begin to, to think about uh, transhumanism. But also, on the other hand, works in science fiction and in comic books have desensitized us to maybe some of the real concerns that we should harbor because of the transhumanist vision. So it's, it's a double-edged sword in many respects, but it was a, just a fun way to, to try to, 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 to draw people into uh, what, what, what is a very complex conversation involving science, technology, philosophy, and theology. Right. Well, I think it's really timely, too. I have a number of friends who watch um, Amazon's show, The Boys, which – sort of delves into some of those issues. So it's really for you to bring in kind of the comic book and yeah, it is a fun way, but like it also so well relates to the culture that we live in um, and starting to get people to think more critically, which I think really is one of the challenges with Christianity and this transhumanist movement is it's not even just Christians, but like nobody's really thinking critically about what are the ways that we're using technology or technology is influencing us in our culture? Well, you know, I, you know, not to belabor the, the comic book point, but again, I'm a comic book nerd, so I'm sorry about that. But, 
Um, but, you know, the thing is, one, I think one of the goals that we should all have as Christians uh, in, is to how, is to, how to, uh, to make connections with our culture in a way that allows us to engage our culture in, in, an, in a meaningful way with the, with the gospel. And there's just a, a, a fascination with comic books and comic book superheroes today in our culture. And I think there's so many themes that, that comic books bring up that are related to the Christian faith. Uh, Devin, you mentioned the problem of evil and the fact that comic books represent a form of a, of a theodicy, or we see savior figures. Uh, we see, you know, uh, the, the, the gods, so to speak, uh, that had been, you know, that are the, the comic book superheroes, the gods of our culture, in the same way that you would see gods in, in ancient Greece or in ancient Rome. And so there's a lot of, you know, religious connections that we can make to the comic book phenomena uh, and, and build bridges to the gospel where we could easily get into conversations with people about comic books and, and comic book superheroes and what a great and a natural segue to the gospel but in the same, right. in, in, but right. in a sense, that's also a metaphor for what we're trying to do with this book on transhumanism. The, the ideas behind transhumanism can be extremely frightening, and our first reaction is to condemn it, you know, is to just to, to pronounce this as being unwise or to try to ignore it, saying there's no way that this is ever going to happen. And what the message of the book is really, we've got to think about how do we engage this idea, uh, and and. How do we play a role in shaping what our future is going to look like through a Christian worldview perspective? But more importantly, again, how do we find those connection points to the gospel in a, in a transhumanist world? And so, in a sense, you know, the, the, the use of the comic book metaphor in the book uh, had double purposes. And that was, again, to try to not only introduce the topic in a fun way, but to get people to think about using comic books as well. Uh, to 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 share the gospel. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. I think that was really, like I say, that uh, it, it hit hit home with me and just made me think of, you know, in in a way I hadn't thought about comic books before. So I thought that was cool. Real quick, let me give the number out. Uh, if anybody out there would like to call in and talk to Dr. Rana, we would love to have you call in with your question. You can call at six one nine. Seven six eight seven three one four six one nine seven six eight seven three one four. You touched on it, uh, touched on this a little bit, uh, but maybe I don't know if you wanted to expand a little bit on it. But about what are your thoughts on the melding of humanity uh, and technology? Yeah, you know the, the 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 challenge with with transhumanism and and human enhancement technology is that the, the ethical and the theological issues are incredibly complex. The, and the, the, we're operating in, in areas of gray. There's no black, there's no white, unfortunately. And you know, the, the, the problem is, is that much of the technology that is enlivening the transhumanist uh, vision and, and what making, it, uh, have the, the, making transhumanists have the hope that a transhumanist future will soon be upon us, are technologies that in a biomedical context could be transformative for, for people's lives, people that are suffering from genetic disorders for which there are no treatments right. or people that have suffered brain injuries or stroke and they, they're locked in, they can't communicate, but yet there's still stuff going on in their brains and in their minds. You, you have you know, people that are amputees that are immobile because they're paraplegic or quadriplegic and so, you know, the technologies in gene editing or computer brain interfaces is literally going to change these people's lives. And, and our first reaction is that if we start to manipulate ourselves, our biology with technology, if we start to meld our biology with technology, we're going to dehumanize human beings. We're going to strip us of our identity as human beings. And that's a, a very genuine and real concern. In fact, that's one of right. the, the themes in the Iron Man comics when does Tony Stark end and Iron Man begin, you know, as they increasingly become melded together? Uh, but on the other hand, for somebody who is locked in or who's a quadriplegic or a paraplegic who lacks mobility, these technologies, though, it may, again, because these technologies may, be, may alter their biology. It could actually help them to recover some of their humanity 
if you will, that they could have perhaps lost because of a stroke or because of, of a brain injury where they, they can't communicate, but yet they still ha- are capable of thinking. Uh, the, 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 the ability to communicate rehumanizes them, if you will, or helps to recover their, their, that part of their humanity that they've lost or to give somebody mobility and independence uh, when they've lost that because of an injury or because of disease is, is so really very important. And so I'm not opposed necessarily to melding humans with technology for biomedical purposes right. or even for some kind of limited enhancements. There could be very good reasons why somebody needs to, to modify themselves, biologically speaking, uh, uh, but it, it's done in a way that is actually important for them as an individual. It, it helps them to achieve or accomplish something that is really very important and meaningful and worthwhile to accomplish. But there, there is intuitively a line that I think we can cross. And the challenge is, is I'm not really sure, even have, after having written this book, where that line exactly is. But this is why it's so important, I think, for Christians to really understand the science and the technology that's fueling transhumanism and, and the transhumanist vision, not to, you know, to not, we've got to do our homework and it's going to be hard right. work, but we've got to do it. Uh, because as, as we understand that technology, we're going to have a better uh, sense for where that line actually is. And it may very much be on a case by case basis and not a, a, a even a, a blanket approach to the technology, but uh, almost a specific application of each of the technology where we evaluate each specific case. Uh, and so mm-hmm. this is a, a very important question, but really an, an impossible question to answer in many respects. Yeah. Well, along with that, then, do you think that transhumanism kind of as a movement suffers from the heap paradox or the idea that you can take a grain of sand from a pile of sand or a heap of sand one by one and taking one grain away doesn't make it not a heap. But eventually, if you keep doing it, suddenly you only have a grain of sand left. Yeah, that's a, that's a great um, – I think that's a great point that you're making, uh, Jesse, uh, and, and, you know, that, that it's, again, yeah, the, the, the heap fallacy or the heap paradox. You know, I mean, in, in another – problem that transhumanism suffers from is, is related to that in some respects, I think, is something called the salvation paradox. That is, the goal is to save human beings, to grant human beings a, a form of immortality. But if we alter ourselves with technology to such a degree that we no longer are truly human beings, but we're something of our own making, we're a post-human species or a collection of species, then what we've actually saved is not us, but, but it's, we, what we're saving is that which is our creation. And in, in, in the process, we've actually led to our own demise, to our own extinction. And so these are some of the, 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 the I think, the very serious problems with the transhumanist vision uh, that I think oftentimes are overlooked or neglected by transhumanists who I think are incredibly optimistic but at the same time incredibly naive about um, what their vision could actually result in. Well, with that um, and kind of being slightly naive or maybe too naive or optimistic, as far as evaluating some of these technologies, like in your book you mentioned gene editing or uh, biological computer interfaces, what degree do you think we should weigh the present considerations of the technology that, you know, if we edit genes, we might be able to get rid of certain um, genetic diseases that cause an untold amount of suffering with future conditions that we might, or we might ruin the gene pool, gene pool or give five or six generations down the road the inability to reproduce or something like that. Yeah, yeah, great, great insightful question. And you know, when it comes to decision-making about which technologies, you know, as a, as, as a, as a, you know, as a, as human beings that we should pursue or we should set aside, uh, people that work in the, the philosophy of technology have three different models for how to make those decisions. 
One is called the cost-benefit analysis, which is pretty self-explanatory. You know, if the costs uh, outweigh the benefits, then we don't pursue the technology. And if the benefits outweigh the costs, we pursue it. And, of course, that's a rather coarse and crude way to deliberate about technology. Uh, And the other mode is called the precautionary principle, where we look at the, the the perspective misuses of the technology. And if a misuse is so great, even though it, it, it may be a remote possibility, then the argument is we shouldn't pursue it uh, because, again, the, 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 that, that potential risk could be so devastating that it's, not, that it's not wise to pursue the technology. And then there's a, a third approach called the precautionary principle, where the argument is that we need to pursue the technologies because if we don't pursue the technologies, there's no way that we ever are going to be in a position to, to understand how to properly manage the technology, and that by not pursuing the technology, there's also risks that are associated with leaving technology undeveloped. And so those are three models. None of them are completely satisfactory, but, but to me, I think something that is a hybrid of the precautionary principle and the, the precautionary principle is probably what we want to pursue. And, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, Ken Samples and I do in the book is to point out that if you try to deliberate about how to use these technologies from the standpoint of secular bioethics, which involves consequentialism and, um, and utilitarianism, you don't get very far very yeah. fast. Those systems don't, don't work well. They break down yeah. quickly. Uh, and, and we argue that even though the Christian worldview has produced an ethical system that is, you know, 2,000 years old, that ethical system is incredibly robust and is actually capable of, of navigating the complexities of transhumanism. Uh, and, and it's because human beings, according to the scriptures, are made in God's image. And the implications of that idea are so profound, uh, but yet are so powerful in terms of creating an ethical framework for biotechnology uh, because, you know, we, we are, uh, we know that every human being has infinite worth and value. So because of that, we want to do whatever we can to mitigate human pain and suffering, to promote the flourishing of human beings, to make sure that there is genuine justice in the world that we live in. Uh, But we also see that because we're made in God's image, we're being granted dominion over the creation and I believe that part of that dominion is essentially the, the authority that we've been granted to develop biotechnology. And so the issue isn't, you know, playing God, because I would argue that because we're made in God's image, we have no choice but to play God. To me, it, the question becomes, are we trying to take God's place? Uh, and, so, wow. uh, and so there's a, a strong mandate that we have for, I think, developing biotechnologies uh, in light of promoting, you know, again, human progress. But we, we want to also recognize, and this is part of the Christian worldview, that, we, that these technologies could be used in ways that are unjust or in ways that would exploit human beings. And so th- th- inherent in the Christian worldview is this recognition that while we want to mitigate pain and suffering, we, we recognize that there's a line that we can't cross, and that line would be the loss of human dignity and, and the exploitation of human beings. Uh, and, and yet it's also a worldview that, that promotes the development of technology at the same time. So to me, it's an incredibly powerful worldview that I think uh, could be effectively applied on a case-by-case basis to really give us genuine guidance. And we illustrate how that would work with respect to, to gene editing, the CRISPR gene editing revolution that's taking place, where we show how uh, that, that, that framework helps us to make, you know, I think really robust decisions uh, that allow us to have our cake, but also eat it too at the same time with regard to the technology where we can promote human flourishing and protect humans from exploitation. Mm. Great stuff. Very good stuff. Uh, Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and you want to come back for sure and join us if you want to call in at 619-768-7314. That would be great. We would love to hear from you and take your calls. 
with Dr. Rana, and uh, we'll be back right after this. It used to be that in order to engage with people from other religions, we had to send missionaries out to faraway places. But in the 21st century, we have become a global culture. Now, instead of us going out into the world, the world is coming to our back door. It's not uncommon these days for us to encounter a Muslim coworker or Hindu parents at our kids' soccer practice. Now everyday situations ought to be opportunities to interact with a diversity of religious perspectives. The challenge is, how do we do that? That's why I wrote the book, God Among Sages. I want to offer a practical tool to help equip Christians to confidently compare the prominent icons of the world's religions and see how Jesus rises above the rest. I'll help you demystify the beliefs of other religions so that you can confidently share your faith with others. It's my desire that God Among Sages will ignite a passion in your heart to start strategic conversations with the people in your life who need to find the eternal hope that's only offered in Jesus. at its basic level is providing a reasoned answer to questions about and arguments against Christianity. Students, when they get to university, are bombarded with every worldview except for the Christian worldview is not on the table in any of their classes or disciplines. A lot of students are asking questions, students who grew up in church and students who haven't had exposure to Christianity, and they're thinking about, why am I here and what's life about? very much the university functions as the mind of the Western world. And there wasn't a credible voice that was engaging the, the campus with the Christian worldview. And so I believe that Rational Christie is God's answer to um, helping us to engage and to help show that Christianity is a public truth that's defensible, that can compete in the marketplace of ideas for the mantle of truth. We have to come to understand that knowledge is from God. I mean, all truth is God's truth. Every Christian needs to know some apologetics so that we can all fulfill the Great Commission. There was a need on the college campuses, and God raised up Ratio Christi to fill that need. So when you give support to Ratio Christi, you're giving them the type of resources that they absolutely need to have to share their faith with others. your apologetics tip of the day. Focus on the gospel, not on apologetic arguments. You know, sometimes we're so eager to try out our arguments that we initiate discussions about some apologetic subject as if that's the most important thing to discuss. It's not, right? I mean, if you have the opportunity to bring up the gospel, that matters more than any other subject. Now, if they reject the gospel for some reason, then you can use your apologetics to address their concern. Remember, apologetics is not an end in itself. The end is the gospel, and apologetics is simply a means to that end. And it can help you remove obstacles that people might have that keep them from accepting Christ. So if you're in a conversation and you can lead the discussion in any direction, lead them to understand what Christ has done for them. That's your apologetics tip of the day. At Stand to Reason, we help Christians to think clearly so they can share their worldview with others. If you want to see more videos like this one, go ahead and click the subscribe button. CSN International, the Christian satellite network broadcasts to well over 300 stations nationwide, all from right here in Twin Falls. CSN is the station for solid Bible teaching and the best modern praise and worship. Tune in at 4 p.m. for CSN's live call-in program, To Every Man and Answer, with Steve Matheson, and Sunday mornings at 10.30 for a live broadcast from the river. Listen on air locally at 89.9 FM or online at csnradio.com. CSN International, where God's Word is heard. Welcome back, folks, to Theology Matters, and we have our guest, uh, Dr. Fuzzle Rama, on, and we are looking at the issue of transhumanism and looking at his new book, Humans 2.0. We would really encourage you guys to uh, get a copy of the book. You can go to Reasons uh, Reasonable. Reasonable say it. I'm getting it all all confused. <laughs> reasons to believe. <laughs> There's reasons for faith. Reasons to believe. Reasonable faith. 
You go to Reasons to Believe or uh, on Amazon, so you can get it there, and uh, take a look at uh, the new book, Humans 2.0. So, uh, Dr. Rana, one of the other questions I guess we wanted to ask was, um, and, and again, you've hit on some of these before, but just wanted to, to hear a little more maybe expounding about, uh, is there current, uh, currently any kind of ethical regulation on transhumanism? Uh, kind of the bottom line answer is not really. Uh, for example, if you look at CRISPR gene editing, uh, this is an incredibly powerful uh, gene editing technique that is uh, relatively easy to use and is incredibly inexpensive. Uh, and you know, people are looking at CRISPR ushering in another revolution in molecular biology where through this gene editing technique, we can literally alter at will with high precision the genomes of organisms, including human beings. And so with this technology, you could correct a defective gene. You could splice out or de delete a, a gene from the human genome, like let's say a, a gene that is part of the HIV virus that will get its, has it, have its genetic material incorporated into the human genome. So it's a very powerful technique that could, again, treat not only genetic disorders but a number of viral infections that cause a lot of human misery. But because the technique is so inexpensive and so easy to use, it's, it's essentially widely available to anybody who wants to use it. And so, for example, you can, for under $200, you can go to Amazon and order a CRISPR gene editing kit and have it delivered to your house the next day and, uh, and do gene editing experiments on your kitchen counter. Uh, this is how wow. inexpensive and, and how powerful the technique is and how easy it is to use. And, in fact, it's even spawned what's called a DIY, do-it-yourself biology movement, where people in that movement are actually arguing that these highly uh, sophisticated techniques shouldn't belong to the academic elites uh, who are trained as scientists but should be available to everybody to, to make use of. Now, the, the problem here is this, that the scientific community that has played a role in developing CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing has organized uh, symposiums where those symposiums have issued uh, recommendations as to what the gene editing technique should be used for and what it should not be used for. So there are very strong recommendations from these organizations uh, against actually doing gene editing on human embryos with the concern that this would permanently alter the genetic makeup of that, of that, of that human individual and that genetic alteration could enter into the, the human gene pool. Plus, of course, working with human embryos, even for people that are not necessarily pro-life, still creates disquiet and discomfort. And so people recognize that really we shouldn't be doing gene editing at this point on human embryos. But in spite of these recommendations that many people in the scientific community who are responsible would readily agree to, you have people that are looking to skirt these, these guidelines. And, and it, we all are familiar with the, the two, uh, at least the alleged uh, twins that were born in China that had yeah. their genomes edited uh, so that they would have an inherent resistance to the HIV virus. Uh, and so people can skirt around these issues. Or um, there's a scientist from the Salk Institute in San Diego, a highly respected uh, research institution in the United States, who traveled to China and in that, intellect, or in that regulatory milieu was able to produce the very first human monkey uh, chimeras, uh, uh, where they were, he, they were, this researcher and his collaborators are creating embryos that were an, an amalgam of, of monkey cells and human cells. And this was permitted in China because of, of the lack of regulation. And so this is a very real concern is that we don't have uh, appropriate regulation and the technology is developing so fast that nobody can keep up with it just in terms of, of understanding the technology, let alone deliberating about it, its use, usefulness. And so this is, again, deeply concerning and in fact, there are people that are concerned that because of the, uh, the, you know, the World Health Organization can issue guidelines as to what we should or shouldn't do with gene editing, 
but it's really up to countries individually to adopt those guidelines or to reject those guidelines. And so this is going to create, if it, if it hasn't already, what would be called genetic tourism, where people might travel to different parts of the world to have gene editing done on, uh, you know, on the embryos that they would create through in vitro fertilization with the hope of creating a designer baby uh, that would have superior physical or intellectual capability. And so, you know, this is a, you know, a very real concern because we are practically in the wild, wild west of gene editing, mm-hmm. and it's only going to get worse before it gets better. But this is all the more reason why, again, as Christians, we have to demonstrate to our culture in a, in a sophisticated way the, the power of the Christian worldview. Because if we can show to people that, that the Christian worldview has something to say about this and, and get people to at least adopt, again, or try to recover some of the, the ethics that the Christian worldview is, is, can produce, uh, that this can at least help mitigate or control or regulate some of this, not through government regulations, but through, uh, through a, 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 a personal convictions as to what we should or shouldn't yeah. do from a moral standpoint. So this is a complex issue. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, and, you know, when you start looking at the prospects of, you know, companies, private companies setting up operations where they're offering gene editing services, um, you know, you really are going to create a world where there are these genetic haves and genetic have-nots, where there's going to, you know, people that are at a socioeconomic advantage are going to be able to, uh, you know, expand that advantage for their children by, you know, allowing or even for themselves by subjecting themselves to gene editing experiments with the hope of improving upon their condition and further exacer- exacerbating the advantages they have over other people's. And, and so you can see a world where there's stratification taking place, not on social lines or economic lines or, or uh, ethnic divert or based on ethnic you know, uh, you know the, the ethnicity of an individual, but based on whether or not they have enhancements or not, and and so this is these are very real problems that are literally at our doorstep, and uh, and so wow. we've got to be we've got to know what's going on, and we've got to, to to think through quickly how we're going to effectively engage these ideas. Yeah, well, and I love kind of how rooted in justice your book is. Um, A lot of times whenever I hear about these issues, I think of either Huxley's book, Brave New World, how you have the different caste system and people are genetically engineered to be in a certain caste. Or there's this sort of old movie called Gattaca, where basically there are people that are designer babies and some that are not. And to go and be an astronaut in space, you have to be a designer baby. And it's the story of how this one person basically cons the system and wasn't a designer baby but tries to make it into space and just kind of the implications of that and so yeah it's really important um and a lot of this stuff seems sci-fi but like you said it's it's here and present and kind of on the topic of stuff being here and present i don't have a scientific background by training but i feel like i just am so better versed after reading um kind of the first third of the book and uh, understanding some of the specifics with like CRISPR and the brain computer interface. So first I want to say thank you. I feel like you did such a great job explaining that in a way that anybody can understand. And then along with that, why there are kind of three topics that you talk about gene editing, brain computer interface and anti-aging technology. Why did you guys decide to talk about those three technologies? And are there any sort of considerations that maybe made it on, didn't make it past the cutting floor that we should also be concerned yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, and that's a that's a great question. And and by the way, one one other point I'd like to make uh, before we move on to that 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 important question that you're asking is I know that both of you are involved in campus ministry, working with young people, and I think one of the best things we can do uh, as as the church is to encourage young men and women who have an orientation towards science and engineering or medicine to actually not avoid work in synthetic biology or in in biotechnology or bioengineering, but to actually go into those disciplines and to go into those disciplines with their Christian worldview strong 
where they realize wow. that they are essentially salt and light in those communities and that there is great ways they can serve humanity through the technologies that they will develop, but they become that, that Christian voice, that, that, that Christian yeah. ethical perspective as insiders that is probably going to be more important than, than culturally aware Christians that are effective at engaging our culture. We need everybody, yeah. but there's a special role for young men and women to play uh, you know, in, in, the, in the next several decades. Oh when we start looking at transhumanism. Um, so anyway, now, so I applaud both of you for your work in, with young men and women. It's so vital. It's so important. Uh, and, and, and the role that you're playing, you know, for the kingdom of God is, is immeasurable. And so, you know, I, I'm, you know, just my, my, my hat is off to, to, to people like you guys who see that as a, as a calling and, and, and pursue it with everything you have. Thank you. Uh, so sorry, Jesse. Sorry, sorry Jesse. O- off my soapbox now. And off <laughs> to your question. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, when we wrote the book, part of the deliberation was what really represents, in my mind, the most credible scientific and technological advances that really have the greatest prospects of actually uh, matriculating into clinical applications in such a way that it would genuinely fuel transhumanism. So there, there's things like, um, you know, uh, where people are, you know, putting their, their, you know, after they die, they're, they're, they're putting their brains or their heads into cold storage and things like that. You know, to me, that type of stuff seems to be, I know that people are doing that, but to me that, that doesn't seem like a, a legitimate or a credible technology. Uh, there's a lot of stuff happening in pharmaceuticals and in nanotechnology that, that we didn't really get into simply because, to me, the gene editing and the computer brain interface technologies are those that, again, I think have the most likelihood of really matriculating into application. But those are also the technologies where you literally have the, the, the potential to alter uh, human, the, the biological makeup of human beings. Whereas, you know, there's a lot of people looking at the use of pharmaceuticals to enhance our intelligence or our physical strength. In fact, people are utilizing anabolic steroids in that way, you know, in sports. But they're, they're, while those drugs may have lasting impact, there's still – you can stop taking those drugs and at least in principle return to our natural biological makeup, right? Um, and so I, I didn't – I just decided – that, that probably wasn't worth pursuing that in the book, though it is going to be part of, of the transhumanist vision. You know, when you write a book, sometimes things yeah. wind up on the cutting floor. Uh, yep. So uh, now anti-aging technology is something else we pursued because we, we are learning an incredible amount right now about the biology of aging. And there are highly credible uh, biogerontologists who really think that the problem that we're confronted with in biomedicine is not diseases like heart disease or cancer, but it's actually aging, that they're viewing aging as not an, a natural part of our biology, but actually a disease. Uh, and so they're treating mm-hmm. aging as if it was a disease, trying to cure aging, cure human beings of aging. And the, the, the progress in this area is uh, fast enough and the way the mindset is changing is significant enough that I think anti-aging technologies will be very much part of what drives transhumanism. And the thing is, mm. I think anti-aging is insidious enough that it could make transhumanists of us all because we all are trying to do everything we can to extend our life expectancy and the quality of our life. And so it's going to be very easy to get sucked into transhuman, the transhumanist vision through anti-aging more so than gene editing or a computer brain interface. I would have a, I, I would have a, a lot of pause for thought about gene editing myself or attaching an interface to my brain, uh, even though there yeah. may be the, the prospects of what they may produce for me may be very real. But anti-aging stuff, I, I'm already thinking about how can I extend my life expectancy. So, you know, uh, that's where I think the transhumanist vision could infiltrate not only our culture at large, but our church uh, in a very real way um, because mm. of, of the interest we all pay to, 
to delaying the aging process. Well, yeah, yeah, that's good. That's a good point. As we, um, well, Jesse, I'm going to, as we get ready to wrap up, I'm going to let you ask your question uh, with J.C. Ryle, and then I'll kind of wrap us up. Um, <laughs> but go ahead, and, go ahead and ask your question. I know you wanted to get that in. Yeah, so as an Anglican, I'm a big fan of J.C. Ryle, and he always tries to write things thinking of kind of the common man or whoever's in his, in his congregation. And so I think kind of in how does this apply to the lowest common denominator? So for the Christian mother in rural Uganda, what's the takeaway from humans, trans, humans 2.0? Like how will this impact them or what are some ways that they can think about this that maybe it would impact them? Yes. Uh, well, to me, I think, and, and this is the opportunity that transhumanism presents to us as a church, is that what's undergirding transhumanism is a desire ultimately for salvation. That transhumanists see the world that we live in as being uh, not the way it should be. They want a utopia. They want to mitigate pain and suffering. They want to promote human flourishing. They see death as unnatural. Uh, they see that every human being seems to have purpose and destiny and, and some kind of desire for hope. And, you know, for many, for, for transhumanism, what people are doing is turning to technology, which makes sense in a world that is secular, that is, that is so influenced by science and technology, but they're turning to technology as the mode for their salvation. But in the process, what they are doing, transhumanists are exposing the need that we all have for essentially a sense of hope for purpose and destiny and a desire to escape uh, the ultimate enemy of humanity, which is death. And this is exactly what the gospel offers us. And so I work in a ministry that looks at the scientific case for the Christian faith. And the reason we do that is so many people erect scientific objections to Christianity as barriers to the gospel. But what transhumanism is doing is laying, ex is, is laying bare the need that every person has for what the gospel offers. And so transhumanism, in my mind, represents the, uh, a counterfeit gospel, and it's going to be the chief competitor to the Christian gospel in years to come. But if we are able to show, you know, again, why transhumanism is truly a false gospel, and we, we have a chapter in the book ex exposing why transhumanism is a, a, fal a false gospel, and at the same time we're able to articulate the gospel in a way that resonates with the need that every human being has, transhumanism becomes an opportunity for every Christian to engage other people in our culture, regardless of whether you're a PhD in science or you are just a, uh, you know, uh, a lay person without an education whatsoever. Every person has an opportunity to use transhumanism to express the gospel and, and to, to help people see the need that Christ alone can fulfill the need that every human being has. Well, it sounds That's like good. we've got quite the challenge ahead of us, but an exciting opportunity. Yes. And, 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 and as Christians, we always need to look at our culture and say, again, where's my, where's the opportunity for me to connect the gospel to what's happening in our culture. And, and transhumanism is one of those opportunities. Amen. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit where people can find your work and the work of Reasons to Believe and uh, where they can help support you. Sure. Well, if people go to our website, reasons.org, uh, they can actually get a copy of Humans 2.0. And in fact, for uh, the, the remainder of this month, the month of August, if uh, people – donate any amount to the ministry, they actually, we will actually send a copy of a Humans 2.0 to them as a thank you, as a, as a wow. gift from us to them. So if people want to get a, a hold of the book and also want to support our work at Reasons to Believe, it's a win-win situation. Or if people just want to buy the book, they can get it at reasons.org through our online site, or they could go to Amazon and get it there. Uh, there's a Kindle version of the book that's available as well. Wonderful. And I would, you know, I really recommend people, you know, um, go, go to, go check out their website and, and they have really good materials, you know, um, 
I'm actually, I don't know if you knew this, Dr. Rana, but I'm actually a young earth creationist. And I think, I think Jesse is too, if I'm not mistaken, but you know, I really appreciate the work of reasons to believe. And I get a lot of really good, valuable information, uh, from there. So I really encourage people, you know, go, go to the website, you know, I've got several other books. Uh, it's, it's phenomenal work. It's really, really good stuff. So, uh, please check out their website and, and Dr. Rana, thank you again so much for, for giving us an hour out of your day and, and coming on and talking about this important topic and just sharing so much wonderful knowledge with us. Well, thank yeah. you for, for hosting me, for having me. I, I'm really honored and touched that you would want to have me on your show. And, you know, I did, my prayer is that God uses all of our work for his glory and for the, the sake of the gospel. So, again, God bless both of you. Thank you so much for your, your hospitality and your kindness towards me. Wonderful. Thank you so much, and, and hopefully we'll be able to have you on again in the future. I'd love that. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you. All right, folks, uh, next week we will have our friend Cammie on, and we're going to be looking – Cammie Hodgeon, we're going to be looking at how do we answer objections from the LGBTQ community. It's uh, going to be a, a, a really good show. Uh, it's going to be recorded. It's already been recorded, so unfortunately we're not going to be able to take uh, live calls, but they go over kind of the typical objections that, that come up. So join us for that. And then the week after that, we are going to be here with Paul Copan, philosopher, written several books, True for You, Not for Me, When God Goes to Starbucks, uh, was on the team of RZIM for a long time. And we're going to look at his new book, uh, What Would Jesus Eat? The Biblical Case for Eating Meat. And we're going to knock down a lot of those vegan arguments. Not that there's anything wrong with being a vegan if that's what you choose, but there is, within some of them, seems to be an aggressive worldview that, uh, you know, says eating eating animal products uh, is a sin and et cetera. So we'll get into a lot of those issues so thank you again for joining us, Jesse. Great job, man. Thanks for having me on. It was super fun. And thanks to, again to Fuzz for being willing to talk about these really important issues and putting in all the time, both him and Ken Samples, to write this book. I think it's really, really important that Christians are made aware of some of these issues that he brings up in um, his book and ultimately like he lays out why transhumanism is a false gospel and how then we have the opportunity, which I think is really exciting to share the gospel and point out that it is a false gospel. So thanks for letting me be part of it. I really appreciate it. You know, I think in a few years, man, I'll be interviewing you. You're going to be the expert on transhumanism. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I feel like yeah. I still have a long way to go, but we'll see. I would love to come well, back on, though. And I, we, yeah, we'll definitely have you back on. But yeah, you hear someone like Dr. Rana start talking for about five minutes, and you realize when you think you know something, all of a sudden you, you hear someone like him, and you realize, man, I got a long way to go. He is so, so smart. <laughs> so, yes. Great job, man. We will have you back to do some co hosting with us. And uh, thanks again, man, for all you do. Yeah, thank you. Likewise. God bless. All right. God bless, my friend. All right, folks. Join us again next week for Theology Matters. Yeah. In that time, same my chat. My chat. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. 
you can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical, we gotta see. The importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation, creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. Yeah. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens, sturdy and fixed. Romans 11:36. Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest, greatest story, story ever, ever told. told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 